Well, good morning. Uh, I'm glad you all are with us today. Uh, uh, we've got some text to cover. We've got a little bit of work to do. Um, I'm going to read through it, uh, and then we'll spend some time unpacking it. But we'll be in Matthew 9 uh, as we continue through the book of Matthew, uh, and um, starting at verse 18. While he was saying these things to them, so these things, the previous section around um, uh, wineskins and the garments and uh, even some of the stuff around uh, people uh, need doctor and he, they, he, Jesus desires mercy and not sacrifice. All right, these things. Behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched him. The fringe of his garment, for, uh, touched the fringe of his garment, for she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to him, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. And then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were open, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all the district. And as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed uh, man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never has anything like this been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. So, what questions arise just from these quick-hit sort of four moments of healing? What questions pop out of the story? Things that happen, things that Jesus says, things that other people say. Ooh, that's a good one. I don't know if we're going to tackle that yet, but we will. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good one too. We will tackle that today a little bit, um, but I think it has a lot to do with where miracles happen more than who they happen to. What else? These are good questions. There are things that we should observe, things that are like, why is this? Why is it like this? What else? Anything else? Yeah. Right, yeah, why is Matthew construct these stories in a row? Like, there's no telling whether all these happen on the exact same day or not, but um, Matthew at least wants to record them in a certain sequence. It's a good question. It's always a wonderful question in context. And it's hard. Uh, I had originally planned on preaching even more text than we already just read because they all sort of flow into each other. It's, it's great. It, but it, it, we'd be here for an hour and a half. Any others? No, these are good. Yes, I will, I will tackle a few of those. Uh, not the Prince of Demons yet. Uh, we, we may spend maybe a couple weeks camped out uh, when we deal, I think, with the concept of hell uh, we might talk about demons, Beelzebub, and stuff like that for an extra week or two. Um, but TBD, don't hold me to that one. Uh, how many of you know the story of Andy Kaufman, the comedian Andy Kaufman? Um, 
he, he was on SNL, he was on Taxi, he was on a few different TV shows. He was a bit of a, a brilliant, albeit very quirky, comedian. Uh, he had all sorts of nuances to him. And his story was so unique as a comedian um, that they even made a whole movie about it, uh, starring Jim Carrey called The Man in the Moon. And Andy's story, that one of the central parts of the story is his diagnosis with, with a form of cancer that's, that's terminal. Um, it's kind of plays out for multiple years as he is increasingly heading towards uh, what is going to kill him. But as part of the story, he's constantly seeking sort of medical help. He's going to doctors. He's trying to get chemo. He's trying to get help and constantly having no success uh, with any sort of um, uh, remission. And, and he's looking for many options. And he eventually even turns to, to what's called psychic surgery. He flies overseas um, and, and ends up with a psychic surgeon. That's a procedure now recognized fully as medical fraud. But this sort of make-believe, the surgeon would give an illusion with like animal guts and blood that they were like removing the, what is bad and what is terrible from the body. But he was desperate. He, he was years of desperation of how to keep his life going. I mean, he eventually turns to a performer after he died to pretend to be him just to keep his life going. And each year, millions spend untold amounts of money, sort of on quack medicines and alternative therapies and latter-day snake oils of various kinds. People will fork over cash, let their bodies be pierced or manipulated in all sorts of different ways, drink volumes of various liquids, all in the vain hope that maybe, maybe this will be the thing that brings healing. I can't substantiate statistically, but I would argue even most televised versions of Christianity, uh, if they were to get rid of this practice, we wouldn't have very many televangelists left um, because it's, it's a lot of selling of certain things, but it gets connected with Christianity because of stories like this. These stories of Jesus healing people and people wanting healing all the time from Jesus, wanting it so much that people wanting healing get interrupted so that somebody else who wants healing uh, talks to Jesus and interrupts that moment. But as Barbara Brown Taylor says in one of her books, that there's some problems with miracles and healing. And we'll talk about that in a moment, but let's unpack these verses. Verse 18, while he was saying these things, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So this is a setup, as we read, to a scene that will finish. But this ruler is likely uh, the person in charge of the synagogue. Um, this is the term would, would imply that, that this is the person who is the overseer of the synagogue, not the teacher, not the person who would be teaching on a Sunday there, but sort of like the, the groundskeeper manager of the facility and building. They would have some status in the community uh, just because of who they were. And similar to the story of Matthew last week, we don't know what interaction this person had. Uh, his name's Jairus and the other uh, Gospels. We don't know what interaction he's had with Jesus. We don't know the storyline. We don't know what miracles he's seen or not seen. But we haven't seen a resurrection story yet in Jesus, but he seems to certainly think that Jesus is able to resurrect his daughter. Now, we'll do this with a few of the characters in the story, but what do you think this man is feeling in this moment? Yeah, his daughter has died. He's desperate. Like just probably intense amount of grieving, Yet, at the same time, hopeful in the same moment that 
maybe this guy who's been making his rounds and healing some people can do something here. But, but there's desperation. His, his daughter is it's dead. And as far as he knows, there's not a lot of coming back from that up to this moment. He's desperate. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood of 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. But she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Now to clarify, because of word choice, um, this woman's likely suffering from some sort of chronic vaginal or uterine hemorrhaging of some sort. And for 12 years, for 12 years, this woman has had some form of bleeding. And I want to ask this question. What might this woman be feeling? What has been her experience for 12 years? Certainly desperation. At this point, maybe even past desperation. It's 12 years. I mean, she's might have even settled in, being like, well, I'll give this one a go. We don't know. We don't know how desperate, how sort of complacent she is even in this moment. I mean, we see sort of a, a little bit out of her in the story, but, but what else? What has been her community life like, her religious practice? Yeah, she would have been fully excluded from her experience in worship. She would not be able to attend the synagogue. She would not be able to uh, participate in the life of the community. But what else? Anything else we we would expect of somebody who has had the experience that she has had? Yeah, probably exhausted. And and according to some of the other gospel writers, spent everything she had to try to get healing, to try to finally be restored enough that she can worship again, that she can be clean, all of it. Just desperation. But yet she says, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. What do you think that is? Because she's the only one that ever says anything like that in Scripture. Everybody else sort of gets healed directly. He doesn't, she doesn't walk up to Jesus and say, hey, can you heal me of this bleeding? And she says, if I only touch the garment, I will be made well. Any thoughts? What I want to teach you to do, a wonderful thing, particularly in the book of Matthew, is that when there's like a nuance or a little kind of an odd thing, assume it's in the text somewhere. Assume somewhere in the Old Testament there's something about what might be happening in this story. Because there's a few key words at play here. She says, if I only touch the fringe of his garment, the uh, crespedon, the fringe. And it's a word that's very rarely used, uh, actually, in the New Testament. But it's used in verses like, uh, Matthew will use it again in, in chapter 23. And he's talking about the, the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders. He says, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Now, what are the fringes? What are the fringes for, for, for Jewish people in practice? Right. Great. Look, here we go. Fringes. So according to numbers, as Jewish people, they were required to actually have these tassels tied to the corners of their garments. And uh, they would probably wear this more like a poncho with a hole cut out in the middle, more like that. Uh, but they've, over time, become more prayer shawls. Um, but the corners of their, their fringes, or the, 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 these tassels, these, these zitzits on the corners of their clothing. Uh, zitzits, uh, the kanaf, the, the corner. And so they had these 
instructions to do this. And, and God said, this is to set you apart. Like, you, you will look different because there's going to be these weird tassels hanging from your corners. And it's to remind you that you fall under my wing. Corner and wing, the protection is the same sort of um, visual, I think, that's played here. And, and we see it played out. Um, if you know the story of David and Saul, David will eventually come on and actually cut uh, Saul's corner. Uh, and uh, I think it's connected. And David feels really guilty about it. And there's all sorts of reasons. That's not the sermon today. But now, what made this woman think that if I just touch this, I will be made well? And once again, that's the text. Malachi 4 reads this way. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming will shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will be neither uh, root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness, which a lot of people connected to the Messiah, the son of righteousness, shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves and like stalls. Now the Hebrew there is actually healing in his corners. In his, um, uh, in, in the in the kanaf, in the corners, and so there began to be a bit of a superstition that when the Messiah comes, there will be healing. Like you'd be able to touch even his, his tassels, the corners of his garments, and there would be healing in those places. And so this woman, who has had no access to the synagogue for 12 years, no access to probably religious practice and observance very easily yet seems to know enough of uh, maybe even the superstitions of Scripture, and at least knows her Malachi passages, knows what is told of the Messiah. And has come in this moment and says, you know what, even if I touch this garment, touch the corners, I believe he will make me well. And Jesus turned and seeing her, said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And once again, made well is a peculiar term. It's the word sozo. It's a word that um, we get the idea of being healed, being restored, being made whole. But it's also the word we constantly translate as saved, which is always a, a much more robust understanding of this. When we say that Jesus saves us from sin, what, what do we mean? And, and yes, he does the work for delivering us from sin, and Paul will unpack that a bit. But... He also heals us from sin, which is what we just talked about last week, right? Jesus comes along and they ask him, like, why are you hanging out with all these sinners? He's because they're sick and they need a doctor. They need to be healed from sin. And it wasn't just people that had physical infirmities. It was tax collectors and other people too. And she's like, no, that's, that's, what we've, that's what I've come to do is heal people from their sin. And this story now is just incredible in, in the context and in, in understanding who is central to the story. That this woman who has taken a terribly long time, has suffered for years, a terribly probably lonely existence that she has endured for a long time, has believed something about what God has said about the Messiah and has come. And in this moment, this woman's testimony is powerful, I think, to all in Capernaum that day. Enough to make it into the book, at least. Now remember, what was the father in the previous sort of setup of the story? What was his job? Synagogue ruler, right? So he would have played a role, and I'm not saying he would have done it out of malice or hatred. We're not given a lot of his character, but he would have had to play a role in her not participating in the life of worship. 
And he was a man of status. He would have been uh, uh, favored. And so most people would have started hearing this story and been like, he is the priority. He's a man of status. He's a synagogue ruler. He is the one who um, should be uh, getting Jesus' attention. And yet, in the story, his suffering is interrupted by this unnamed woman who's extremely low on the social status, extremely low in acceptance, and yet Jesus, in compassion, heals, calls her daughter, and seeing her faith brings healing to her to showcase to the world what his kingdom is about and who it is about. And these healings, they, they, they constantly are also called signs. They're, they're called signs throughout, uh, particularly John does it, but uh, signs throughout the gospel writers, these sort of pointing moments to heaven. Reminders that things in this life are not how they should be when Jesus interacts with them. And Jesus gives a taste of what they can be, like kingdom previews, like a, like a movie preview of the kingdom of God. And Jesus himself doesn't heal everybody in the storylines. We actually only hear about, uh, I think, 40 people specifically that are healed, and there's times that are the general narrative as Jesus went around healing people, which is about 10 people per, per gospel. And there's times where Jesus has opportunities to heal and actually retreats uh, to be on his own. There's times he gets frustrated with the crowds around their desire for healing and things like that. And so to, to put all the eggs in the basket of Jesus' heal to or here to physically heal us all the time is just not in line with the Gospels either. Lewis Smedes writes that there's a spiritual danger in reducing the Christian life to mostly an exercise of seeking greater ease, comfort, and healing. And perhaps such a focus blinds us to the unalleviating suffering that is all around us, particularly amongst the very same poor and disenfranchised people who occupy such a central place in Jesus' own ministry. So we'll talk about that more in a second. Let's keep moving. Verse 23, and when Jesus came to the ruler's house, he saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion. He said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Now, it's a cultural common practice. Uh, when people would die, you would hire out um, musicians. You would hire out mourners who would wail and cry with you. Uh, they would be around. And they had expertise. They had, this is their job. They had expertise in helping people guide the mourning process. And before we think this is totally weird and random, we're probably on the full other side of the spectrum, just so you know. We mostly live in a culture that doesn't know how to grieve. We rush the process as fast as possible. We have a funeral in one day and kind of move on from life. Um, at least particularly in, in um, probably white culture. Uh, my, my neighbor, uh, her son passed away uh, this year. And I'll tell you what, that was a slow mourning process. There were people at the house all the time. Um, and, and so there's some cultural norms. But, but before we sort of go, this is totally weird. These people know how to grieve, and they have a process for grieving, and they have uh, 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 um, people that help assist in that. Verse 25, when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand. And the girl arose, and the report of this went out through all the district. So this is the first of three moments where Jesus will raise someone from the dead. Now a question, is raising people from the dead unique to Jesus, or do we find it elsewhere in scripture? What was that? Yeah, Elijah, and then his little protege, Elisha, as well. Uh, both of them have stories of people being resurrected from the dead. Three, three actual stories of being resurrected from the dead. So what Jesus says here isn't necessarily totally unique to Scripture. 
I think it's more evidence of God's power in and through Jesus. Yes, he was the Messiah, but coming back from the dead wasn't an expectation that the Messiah necessarily would have brought. There was actually a whole lot of varied opinion about any sort of Messiahship and resurrection to begin with. So we should be cautious sometimes. I've heard enough preachers be like, that proves that he was the Messiah. In the Jewish mind, it wouldn't necessarily. Now, it proves that God's supernatural presence is with Jesus just as much as it proved it for Elijah and Elisha. It proves that the nature of kingdom of Jesus that is proclaiming does involve a, a, a coming from death to life. That's important. There's a restoration of things, body and spirit. But Jesus does this miracle. He does it a bit secretively. So to answer that question earlier, why? Why? Because he'll do the same thing in a few verses. He'll tell people not to tell anybody. But yet, at the end of chapter 8, Jesus goes to the Gentile world, heals this demon-possessed man, and according to all the other gospel writers, tells him, hey, go to town and tell everybody. The guy actually wants to go with Jesus. He's like, can I go be a follower of yours, Jesus? Can I get on the boat? And Jesus is like, no, I need you to go back to town and tell everybody what I did. And I think the difference there is location. I think what Jesus does healing work amongst his own people with their own expectations of the Messiah, with their own theology already fully formed about what healing is and what healing isn't, all these sort of things, I think it gets him into trouble when word gets out. Just about every time that word gets out, the religious people start showing up, the religious leaders, and gonna be like, hey, uh, we, need, we need to hear about this. When, uh, in another gospel story, when um, there's this man who uh, is healed, he ends up being interrogated by the leadership, and then they try to find Jesus in, in lieu of it. But yet, whenever he's in the Gentile world, he seems to be fine with, we'll go and tell. With like the Samaritan woman at the well. He's like, go to town and tell everybody what, what, what you saw here. And, and so you have a unique thing about, I think, the location because I think there's just baggage and confusion amongst his own people and expectations, these presuppositions. Verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came to him and Jesus said to him, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. And then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, it will be done. And their eyes were open, and Jesus sternly warned them, see to it that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all the district. Now, calling someone son of David, that's a lot more messianic in the story. Because he's the one that they've been waiting for, the son of David, this inheritor of the kingship, the Messiahship. But what do they ask for? What do these men ask for? Mercy, right? What did Jesus just say and quote out of Hosea that he desires? Mercy. It's a follow-up story to the previous story. That's why all these things are all weaved together, I think. And he asks them an important question. He says, do you think I am able, or do you believe I am able to do this? Which is a great question. Now hear me. Jesus has performed miracles on multiple people without asking whether they fully believe or can fully confirm that they fully believe that he's able to do things. So I want to be cautious on going, well, it depends on the degree of faith to the healing. I, I, I don't think there's an association to be found throughout scripture. But it's a good question to sit on for a moment because there's so much that hinges on this. Hinges on this. Do we believe that Jesus is able to do things because it changes everything? For these men, it changes. Like, why go to Jesus if you don't think he's able to do things? And if he, you didn't think he was able to, you wouldn't show up. But, but do we believe? Like, do we believe that Jesus is able to resurrect the dead? If not, 
well, we can live for ourselves and be comfortable with that. We might as well make sure we extract as much happiness and comfort out of our life as we possibly can. Live the best experiences, do everything we can. Make sure we maximize this life as best we can. Or at least minimize suffering as best we can. Make us as comfortable as we can be until we die. Like being on a morphine trip. But if it's true that Jesus is able to resurrect the dead, then perhaps we should start living for a kingdom that is not here, but of a different world. Perhaps sacrificing the next expensive vacation in order to be a more generous person for the kingdom of God is a far better storehouse than the financial, with the financial gifts God has given us. Perhaps letting go of certain career goals and instead think, how can I leverage my skill set for the unreached, the impoverished countries, to bring the kingdom to bear on those places through evangelism and mercy? Perhaps choosing to set down roots in places like this, that, and maybe that's a stronger part of a decision-making because of community and because of mission as opposed to a promotion or the convenience of suburban schools or more square footage. And perhaps it's those things because there's a God who can resurrect the dead. And if he couldn't, we're the most to be pitied. But if he could, that should change everything. And maybe his words are true. I had a great conversation with my daughter this week. We um, had, had this unique ability to go to this amazing camp um, and then go on vacation with my side of the family. And both were wonderful. So my mom's watching. Both were wonderful. Um, <laughs> But we spent a week at a camp that was really for um, people with disabilities, various um, neuro or physical diversity. And, um, and it was wonderful. And so much of it was kind of pouring yourself out for others. Um, you're, you're in a community that can't always help itself and can't always uh, do things that us uh, able-bodied people can fully do. And, um, and to be there is to sacrifice. And people pay to volunteer at this camp so that the families who, who have people with various forms of, of abilities can attend. And, and like my daughter worked out a plan uh, on the end of camp to stay at the camp. <laughs> She's like, I'm going to stay with my friend. You go on vacation with, with uh, grandma and grandpa. Um, I'm going to stay. Um, and we're like, okay. I don't think grandma and grandpa are going to fly for that. Um, and so, um, and then we went on this beautiful, just wonderful vacation in a beautiful part of the world and a beautiful resort, and it was amazing. Um, but we returned, and even, even talking to her about it, I was like, <clears throat> why was camp so much better? Um, and I told her, I think she and my, my wife and, and me all said, like, it was just great. And I think so much of it was, was that, of going, you know what? Maybe Jesus is right. Maybe, maybe Jesus, what, what Jesus said about what life's really all about is, is distinct, where he says, look, it's so much more blessed to give. It's so much more full to go serve others. And if what Jesus says is true, if he's able, if he's living this life, if he's turning this world upside down, then, then it should change how we live. It should change how we view things. If Jesus, do we believe that Jesus is able to forgive sins? 
If not, maybe we're in the position where we think that we don't really have sins that need forgiving. And that you and probably your friends are all generally good people. And, and that's where you think, all right, that's all you need. Or perhaps you're on the opposite side and you really struggle with Jesus forgiving your sins. And you carry around this baggage and this weight thinking that your past mistakes are still around to haunt you. But if he's able to forgive sin, then there should be a tremendous amount of freedom all of us should be walking in. That our forgiveness is past and present and future, which provides us the safest place to live in tremendous freedom. That our identity is not failure, screw up, you're evil, you're an addict, you're a murderer, you're a racist, you're a cheater, whatever identity that sometimes we carry, or even sinner. I think sometimes, particularly in Reformed circles, we, we're like, we're all sinners. It's like, no, we've been declared saints and sanctified. Sons and daughters of the Most High God cleansed. That is what we get to walk in. Do we believe that Jesus is able to do that? And do we believe Jesus is able to restore broken things and bring beauty from ashes? Do we believe Jesus is able to clean us and put his spirit in us? And so many of us live as sort of practical atheists as if none of those things are actually true by our lifestyle. We'll verbally say, yes, I believe Jesus did those things and yet live as if he didn't. And I think Jesus asks all of us, do you believe I can do this? And maybe we say like, Another character in the gospel says, yes, Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. God, I repent. You're right. If I, those things are true, then yes, this should change everything about how I live. And then the last little story. As he was going away, behold, a demon-possessed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, never has anything like this been seen in all of Israel. Now, I think part of the stacking of these stories, just to get uh, into another question, um, is a few times in the Old Testament, you will actually have a stacking of a few different sort of characters. Isaiah 35 is a, a good example of this. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an ancient heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. So um, they would have heard that maybe uh, in their time about um, God coming while the nation was struggling, but we can certainly uh, apply it to the Messiah as well. Then the eyes of the blind shall be open, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like the deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth from the wilderness and streams in the desert. And so maybe perhaps Matthew's like, you know what, all those things happened when I was walking with Jesus. And I'm gonna put them all in the story so that we remember that God is fulfilling his promises. And remember, unpacking the chapter, that the expectation is the vengeance the Messiah would come with, to kick out Rome and to do all these sort of things. And in the story of Yahweh's restoration of things, Jesus is coming to bring good news about his kingdom, and it's breaking in. And people that are experiencing blindness are seeing. People that are experiencing muteness can speak. So much that everybody's like, I've never seen anything like this. At least not in this package, all together in this one man. It's certainly not the mute speaking, which is one of the very unique things that happens. And the Pharisees said, leave it to the religious leadership. He cast out demons by the prince of demons. As I said, there's a lot of expectations of Jesus. And the old wineskins are going to have a hard time with what Jesus is doing and how he's doing it and who he's doing it with. 
and his work is immediately distorted to be demonic. Jesus is bringing the kingdom and shalom, the peace of God, and yet there's very resistance from the leadership at the time who thoroughly do not understand what Jesus is doing. Because just a quick check, someone with a hemorrhage for 12 years, clean or unclean? Unclean. The blind, this is a little trickier. Clean or unclean? According to the Torah, not a problem, unless you're a priest, right? And this is where the Pharisees got in a lot of trouble. They took Leviticus 21, which was applied to the priest who who can go into the special place and said, this applies to everyone. And so the blind were suddenly in this category of unclean. The mute, same thing, unclean. So Jesus comes into these spaces in the world where there's just suffering, where people have been pushed to the corners of society towards the unclean things, and he brings restoration. And yet the response, that's demonic. And we'll deal a little more with that because the leaders will say that same phrase in a couple chapters later. But we have to remember, Jesus has the capacity to heal time and time and time again. Like, do you ever see the commercials, um, you know, where they play Sarah McLaughlin and there's some dogs in some cages and it makes you all sad and like, and you get uncomfortable, you have to change the channel, right? Or they show starving children and, and, and you just feel that weight. For a dollar a day, you can provide all this food. And most of us feel so uncomfortable and rotten in those moments. We change it. We're, we're not going to sit and finish this commercial. It's, it's hard. It's hard to see. It's hard to bear. Now imagine the capacity to know of every suffering in the world 24-7. Every whisper of someone who's starving. The groans of abused children who cower in corners the wails of those who experience abuse, the confused muttering of Alzheimer's patients, the heart-rendering gibberish that streams out of people who are robbed by their senses as they age. But Jesus, one after another, in experiencing, knowing, seeing, suffering, and yet he continues to be drawn to it. He's not overwhelmed by this moment. Now, as I already argued, healing could carry with it a problem, right? Jesus, why not everyone? Jesus, you healed the one guy at the pool. Why not everybody else at the pool? Right? And we're not, hear me, we're not given a full reason why not everybody at the pool. And Jesus often takes these moments and utilizes them for further teaching. And I will say he gives a taste and a preview of his kingdom. That in him there is restoration and healing. Now, is Jesus' kingdom fully here yet? This is Kingdom Theology 101. Is Jesus' kingdom fully here? Do we experience all the things that, that a restored world is? No, certainly not yet. Are we fully in Jesus' presence and can see him face to face yet? No. But we do pray, your kingdom come. And we anticipate and, and, and participate in the, the fullness of that. Now, I don't know what it's going to look like for everyone. I don't know on this side of Jesus' return who will experience healing and who won't. I just don't. I don't know why that will be. I don't have answers. I sometimes have wonderful email conversations with a few of you. I don't have answers to that question. But I do know that Jesus does heal. 
I don't always know how those stories will play out or what impact they will make like this woman's story, but I know that Jesus does heal. I don't fully understand what the fullness of healing will look like in heaven. I don't know. It's like the wonders of being at a camp with people with disability because that's a wonderful question. And I don't know. I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know what a fully restored or fully flourishing person body in a resurrected world looks like. I don't know. But I know that Jesus heals. So I will go to the one who heals. Both our bodies and our souls. But I know something about our bodies. Because Jesus will say this in the very next chapter. They can be destroyed. And they will go into the ground. Unless Jesus returns, every one of us, that is part of our story. But there's something that lasts that's different than our bodies. And that's our souls. There's something eternal about that. And Jesus will go to his cross not to heal our bodies, but our souls. That's what Jesus does. And the beauty also of the story is that Jesus is not like a, a television pastor who's looking at the camera and proclaiming at a safe distance that somewhere in the world right now in Capernaum, there's someone who wants to be delivered from their suffering. He doesn't do that. He moves towards people. Someone in Bethlehem needs to be released of a demon. No, he moves in. He got so close to the people who lived on the margins of societies as to be possibly defiled by them, according at least to the religious conventions. He touched a menstruating woman. He touched dead bodies. He touched unholy lepers. These are quiet manifestations of God's glory in precisely the last places on earth that the religious folks think they should be happening. And if miracles are signs and arrows pointing us to the deeper realities of God's kingdom, then surely one of the directions in which we get pointed in the Gospels is towards our being the very people whom, uh, being, that it being towards the people who many people avoid. And there's healing, salvation for our sin-sick souls and for our bodies as well. When I planned to go in ministry, um, I was getting ready, start looking at taking my MCATs, plan of being a doctor. It's what my whole family is, if you don't know my story. My dad's a doctor, both my sisters are doctors, they're married to doctors. Um, it is the family trait. Um, but then I felt the call to ministry. And uh, one of the women that worked at my dad's office, who uh, was a believer, he, she said, Chris, you know, your dad can heal a body. But it's temporary. Every patient that he has is going to die. But you can heal people's souls. And nothing could take that away. And it was something profound just said in that moment. And it's not to put a false dichotomy around the body and the spirit. I want to be cautious on that. Because healing the body is a big part of what Jesus did while he was on earth. It's something his kingdom will include. But the good news is greater than that. That there's a prince who came to seek and save the lost. To bring them back to the king and the kingdom. To restore the kingdom in all of its beauty and majesty. And it cost the prince his life. But it's not a surprise to the prince because it was through that very death that the lost would be found, the sick would be made well, those who were dead would be brought to life, and sin would become righteousness. 
And that's the good news. So, a robust theology on healing? It's complicated. <laughs> I can't tell you when it's going to happen and when it's not. But I know the one who heals. And I can put my faith there. <laughs>